Hello, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm Sean Claybo, your host, and with me today is our guest, Christian Horsdahl. Welcome, Christian. Thank you. Happy to be here. Hello, Sean. Yeah, it's great to have you, fellow uh, Scandinavian person. That's nice to have. <laughs> yes, I'm from uh, from uh, from Denmark. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's... Yes. Yep. So I'm a little bit Norwegian. I, I don't think I've ever, ever mentioned that on the show before, but my family uh, was very heavy Norwegian. So I'm, according there to my go. DNA tests, I'm about 50%. So. Oh, and according to DNA Yeah, of, I don't know how. Of, yeah, it's out of Southern Norway is where I'm. Uh, my family is yeah. from, according to the maps. You know, a lot yeah. of people in my family were Olsons, which is very yes. popular. Yes, we're in, very in, Scandinavian. In yeah. 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 There's probably a lot of German in me, really, I think, <laughs> uh, and then some Scandinavian of, of sorts. <laughs> but okay. I live in Denmark. Oh, cool. When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire, they're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, you know, how you got into development and, and what you do now. Well, how I got into development, I well, I don't know, I guess the it, it's a bit of a typical story, I guess. I don't know when I can remember the first, I guess I was like five or six years old when I remember the first computer and just found it sort of fascinating at the time, just being able to just see that if I type something, it showed up in a terminal. It's just one of these green screen things in the start 80s, early 80s. <laughs> so didn't do much. So I guess the fascination is already back then. And then I think I bought my, or I did buy my first computer when I was 14 with an intention of trying to learn to program. I, and I don't, I can't remember how I got aware that programming was a thing. But that, so I picked up some Visual Basic and put in a lot of go-tos. And I don't know, I did, <laughs> luckily I don't have that code anymore. <laughs> and yeah, from then on, figured out how you actually got an education in this and went to university and, and so on. So, And how long have yeah. you been into .NET? Since around 2005, I guess, or something like okay. that. So that's, oh man, that's coming on 15 years that it's been a lot of uh, .NET going on. So It's amazing time, to think back, you know, how much has changed in just 15 years of .NET. Yes, it's come out. Yes, it was, I guess, .NET 2.0 that I came in at. And a lot of that has happened since. Async await, link, for instance, and well, I can't. I probably can't even remember all the stuff that uh, came since yeah, then. Yeah. <laughs> well, I still do a lot of work in web forms, so I'm still kind of stuck in the past wow. a little bit. Yes. But some of my, you know, my newer projects are all down there core. But uh, yeah. yeah. So a little bit yeah. of everything is still what I'm. I'm working in. Yes. So, yeah. Got to keep them running. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. You know, 15 years ago, if we keep on that same pace. Just imagine what it's going to be like 15 years from now. 
Yes, technology-wise, right, things really move fast. I think, luckily, I, I do think that there are some things that hold true still through all of that when it comes to uh, good design around software and building building resilience and a lot of stuff uh, of that matter. All right. Well, Caleb Wells just joined, so I now have a co-host for a little bit of the show here. Can you hear us, Caleb? Can yeah. You? Oh, there you are. I uh, I wasn't sure if you guys have started. And, yeah, we- um you know, when, when nature calls, <laughs> for lack of a a nicer way of putting it. All right, yeah, we've just got started just a little bit and just did the intro, you know, how he okay. got into development, things like that. We haven't got into the topic yet. So how about... Bob, how are you how, doing, Christian? You only have 15 minutes? I know you. I have till 2.30, right? Yeah, so 15 minutes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Right, you know, the clients that pay the bills come first. <laughs> whether you want them to or not. Yep. I can uh, relate. <laughs> all right. So we'll, we'll get continued now. Okay, cool. All right, Christian. So um, I think what we wanted to talk about today and something you're very familiar with is, is microservices. We've had a few episodes on microservices, but I think there's still a lot more to explore. We really haven't gotten too in-depth with, with some of those things. So why don't you uh, get us started on, on what things we know about microservices and maybe... A lot of things we probably don't know that we need to learn about. Yeah. So, yes, over the last, I don't know, a few, five, seven years, uh, the, the focus has really shifted to to microservices for me personally and I guess for the uh, industry as well. I think a lot of people are having success, but, but obviously uh, not everybody. And I think one of the things that people might get wrong is getting the responsibilities of each of these uh, microservices just right. Something there's actually a lot of meat around how do we how do we create microservices that play well together and where you can deliver something real to to end users and not just bits and small pieces that don't really really fit together. So I find that uh, introducing some uh, domain-driven design along with microservices really helps in trying to to figure out what should each microservice do and how do we attack like a complete system and cut them into these small microservices and actually get the benefits of uh, microservices and not just a lot of complication because they do come with a lot of complication. So so I tend to say that that's, that's your you should really, really, really want them if you if you go there, and then it should be done right. So you actually get the uh, the benefits around the flexibility you can get from microservices, the speed of development you could get from microservices, the interplay with things like uh, continuous delivery that you can get from microservices. But it all sort of has to just has to align correctly, otherwise it drown in in all the complexity. So. So, so the approach that I tend to like to to take to that is uh, is as I said, using some some domain driven design and really using some rules of thumb to try to find the right responsibilities for microservices, which is first and foremost that a microservice should should handle a business capability, which is something. Well, there's a lot of grayscale in what does that actually mean. But to me, it means something that you need to do in a system sort of end-to-end. So the microservice owns the data that relates to something, and the microservice owns all the business logic for that and has the APIs needed in order to uh, to to do that thing. And I think it's something that evolves over time. So one of the examples I, I like to use in, uh, in training, for instance, is... Uh, 
is that you can imagine that you have a uh, sort of a loyalty program for some uh, shop that you might think of. So you have these little uh, plastic cards and every time you buy something, you, you get points and then you get some uh, discounts or something. I think people know about this, uh, this system. And if you imagine you have the chain of shops and they decide that, uh, well, we want this loyalty program. So that so your first approximation could be to say, well, that sounds like a microservice, something that handles this loyalty program. You need users registered there. You need to keep track of their points and they need to deduct the points as well. And maybe you keep track of whether they're eligible to some, some offers or something like that. But then... Already what I've said here is sort of the next step, maybe. That, and that's why I called it the first approximation. Because already here, there was a, a few different things that, that maybe actually the keeping track of the loyalty program users, the people enrolled in it, is one capability. Maybe keeping track of the points is a different capability. Or maybe those, those thing, two things are so tightly connected that they are the same thing. But really answering that, I think, usually take some real analysis of the actual business and, and what goes together and what needs to be different and how complicated is it going to be? Is it just is it just a user, a number, and then adding points and subtracting points? That's probably just one thing. But if it's if there's a lot of rules around how the points are calculated, well, maybe that's a different thing. Then there are things like, are you eligible to some special offer? Is, it, is that simple? complex and sort of the more complex it is the more likely it is that i put it into a separate microservice but i think it's something that evolves over time so i think a lot of people are familiar with like end tier design and is microservices mm. kind of like taking that to the next level where each tier is broken down even further i think of it differently i think microservices cuts it sort of in the other direction orthogonal to the to the what we usually have in the tiers so when, when, at least when you say when you say end tier, I think of of uh, something like a web tier and an application tier, and maybe even a data tier, or something like that. Right. So, so it's, microservices would that break up the business tier and the data tier into you know yes. multiple almost what I would I almost would think a better name for a microservice would be like a single responsibility service. Yes, in many ways it, it would. Sometimes Sam Newman, one of the people who populated the uh, made made the term popular originally, and sometimes he talks about narrowly focused. No, sorry, uh, granular service, fine grained services is, is the word he sometimes uses. And I think it, your word as well. It takes a bit of the focus away from the micro, which sometimes makes it sounds like if it's just smaller, it's better. But it's more about making a cohesive thing that has a single responsibility, as you said, and handles all of that responsibility. So that's from an HTTP API level, maybe, even exposed to towards an app, towards the internet, and then down to the data. So so it's more of a slice in a system than it's a, uh, than it's a tier or a layer that we usually have in these services. So things like function APIs, those are probably too small to be considered considered a microservice? I think they can be used as microservices. I think it depends on how you want to want to approach it. So I do think that an Azure function or an AWS Lambda can be a microservice. They can have several endpoints. So they could so you could put that user handling where you maybe have a post to register a user, put to update the user and a get to get the user. And maybe that's it. So you could put that in 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 a function, and then you could have a data store behind that of some kind in the in the cloud that can be well 
if it's just storing the user and you're basically getting them by by IDE, then uh, it's just a key value thing. Or you might want to put that into a SQL database or whatever. And then that's a microservice, really. You, there's, there's not that much more to it. So I think that can work pretty well. I also see a lot of microservices these days being put in uh, in containers and then in some kind of container service like Kubernetes or one of the cloud-native ones. And that makes a lot of sense too. So, yeah. You know, I am... Um... I am so used to working in monolithic applications or structures, right? And I know people in the last five years who have done microservices just to not do the monolith. But right, based on what you're saying, right, it's it's a tool like anything else and you want to use it yes. the right way or use the right patterns. You don't want to use it just because it's new or cool or different. No, absolutely. And I, the advice I usually give around that is really that I think it's only relevant if you have a, comp a domain which is complex enough to justify the overhead of having tens, hundreds, or sometimes even thousands of different services, having to deploy all those, having to build pipelines for all of those. There's a lot of stuff going on there, having to monitor all those, tracing, so on. So, so you need something that's complex enough to justify that. And then I think you also need a business that wants a lot of flexibility and is actually going to use that flexibility because I think that's what you can really get from uh, from microservices. I think there's there's a bit of a, a yin and yang relationship going on between microservices and continuous delivery that I find it's, uh, it's somewhat easier to do continuous delivery on microservices than it is on a monolith often uh, I'm sure there's exceptions, but sort of in the general case. and But also the other way around, it's close to impossible to do microservices without the continuous delivery as well, because if you don't really have that part nailed down, you'll just drown in the complexity. So, And, and that sort of brings back, why would you want to do continuous delivery? Because again, that's a tool and it, it shouldn't be because, just because of the hype. And I think that comes back to flexibility. So if a business wants to be able to change its mind really quickly, be able to experiment, uh, run A-B tests, and do one thing today, another thing next week, introduce a new, whole new area of functionality just to see if it sticks. And so if, if a business wants to do those kinds of things, then continuous delivery is able to support that way of working from the business side. And I think microservices is, is a architecture that fits with that kind of working. But that's definitely not all domains. So... I could imagine highly regulated domains where that's just not the case or businesses that just are in a more stable uh, business situation where they actually don't work like that um, or organizations which are not able to work like that. So you could, from the IT side, just give more flexibility than the organization can actually handle. And all those cases, well, or something that's just more like... I, well, there has been, as I said, a lot of focus for myself on microservices over the last few years, but not only. I also have projects running where we have a monolithic architectures, and I'm happy, where I'm happy with those because it does what what we need, and we don't really have all the complexity yet, at least, to, to justify something like microservices. So, so yes, it's definitely a tool. It's not the tool. I actually, I, I had not considered a hundred or a thousand microservices. I was thinking small, you know. Tens, yeah. but that that brings up a question, and hopefully this isn't a tangent. But right with development, 
you have to have some pre-planning, but you don't want to do waterfall, right? Or, or you don't want to get stuck in waterfall. But when you're doing microservices, it really feels like you may need to do more of that pre-planning and more of that waterfall approach to make sure that you're you're following the process and setting things up so that they don't fail. What do you think? Mm, no, I, I disagree with that, actually, that you need okay. more upfront planning, but you, but you do need... You need to be able to do architecture continually and planning continually. So I think, so it's not easy. <laughs> it's quite difficult, actually. I think one of the things you can do, which is sort of also one of my rules of thumb, is that then when we talk about these responsibilities that we talked about earlier, like the loyalty program, I tend to would rather have a service be quote unquote too big at the beginning than too small. Because I find it's easier to split them up later than it is to have a period of time where the responsibility is wrong because that that gives a lot of friction. And then maybe at the end you squash them together or take part of the responsibility from one and move it over to another. So I think if so I tend to say if we don't understand the domain well enough yet to be certain how we want to split them then I'd rather have something that feels bigger than I want to end up with, but that's better for a while until we get smarter. So so I think that's one of the things that we need to be able to plan and sort of be, I guess there's some honesty as well there, that, okay, we're not actually smart enough to, we don't, well, not smart, we don't know enough yet to to make this decision. So we'll go with this thing that we expect to change in six months' time, 12 months' time, something as, as things evolve. So not only does it, kind of take a shift in the way the developer sees their work in the overall product. It's going to take a shift in view from the project manager and the client and so on and so yes. forth, right? You, you all have to buy in on this. Yes, I think you do. Because, yes, and that comes back to the reasoning behind really doing it. I, I think it doesn't make sense if the business doesn't want really want a high level of flexibility because we are going to introduce some complexities as well. I guess there's also sort of, I don't know if if there's two people on a team, if it's a two people project or product, then I don't see the, don't necessarily see the point. It, it's more about when there's several teams that work together on, on one bigger system, because then that plays into how are we able to make though each of those team work efficiently. And that, also ties into how we find the right responsibilities again for these uh, these microservices that we have to think about what are the teams and how can they work independently and efficiently because if we create a situation where one team is dependent on many other teams then they might have a hard time ever getting anything done if they need to wait for other teams to do their thing first because we've created dependencies and often that's not that often how those dependencies are set up has to do with the architecture around the microservices. So if we create a microservice that 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 doesn't own its the data that it needs, but also and it 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 always has to sort of query other microservices to get the data, then that tends to also translate to a dependency between the teams where if the team that doesn't own the data that it needs needs anything. It needs to go to another team. Oh, can you please make this and put that into uh, your backlog? And can we have this planned out and, as well? And so on and so forth. And then you just create a situation where that team with the dependency looks bad because it looks like they're always slow. 
but that's actually not actually the case. It's because it's a bad architecture. So that's that's one of the things that again that plays into how we want to split those uh, responsibilities. And maybe we want to say something like that loyalty program again. Maybe we split into several microservices, but place all of those on the same team because they're probably pretty closely related. And then if we have something about the point of sales system as well, that's further away. So that can be in a different team because then we don't have as much coordination going on. That's another of those aspects that pay in play into how we should structure these microservices, and which I think plays a lot into whether it actually ends up being a success or if it just ends up being very complex. Now, now microservices are, are typically fairly independent, but yet they yes. still have to work in coordination with lots of other microservices. So, you know, how is, what's the best way for that communication to be, got, be done? Is there some master microservice that everybody kind of communicates through or, or do you have to just, you know, let each microservice know about the other ones that it needs to know about? I think to some extent you need to let them know about the 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 ones that they need to know about, quote unquote. But I think one of the ways to really make those dependencies a lot softer is to to use as much event based collaboration as we can. So using events where it's one microservice circuit service raising an event that says that something has happened, like a user was registered or a special offer was created or an invoice was sent. And then other microservices can, can subscribe to these, these, these events and react to them. So react can mean that they run some, some business logic when the invoice was sent that does something over in accounting maybe, or when an order was placed, we start trying to fulfill the order asynchronously in the background. But it can also mean listening listening to an event or subscribing to an event and reacting to that can also mean just saving a copy of, uh, of the data. So like a user was registered, then some other microservice can listen to that and store maybe the username because that microservice needs that for something. Now, this other microservice that listens to the event isn't the source of truth for that user. That's the original microservice that, that raised the event. But we allow some duplication of the data across these microservices so they don't have to go ask each other all the time. So the data can live closer to where the business logic is. So if another microservice needs that username, it already has it in its database in what we refer to as a read model, which means that it's only there for reading. It's not for updating that username that only happens through the event system from the other microservice. That gives us a lot of decoupling that we wouldn't otherwise have. And it enables us, I think, also importantly to move even though we have lots and lots of microservices with with these events flowing around and when we allow copying the data out of the events and storing them locally in the services we can move that data close to the edge of the system meaning that when we have a user actually visiting our website for instance or using our mobile app then fulfilling their request can happen at the first microservice or maybe the second microservice, but close to the edge of the system because they will have copies of all the data needed to fill the screen. Whereas if we needed to go ask each of the microservices that originally own each piece of the data, then we might have a situation where user request comes in, hits a microservice, and that has to talk to 
10 different microservices or 15 different microservices, which is just slow and unstable, unreliable, all of that. So we need to also sort of copy that data close to the edge so it's so so we get a good user experience at the end. So we get a number of different benefits from uh, from from doing the event-based collaboration. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. So how is that event handling done? You know, subs- subscribing and triggering them. Is, is it similar to event handling in .NET normally where you just add an event handler in your code or is it different? Yeah, I, think, I guess it's different because we we split it more across uh, different services, which are sort of independent deployable units. So they run in each of their container or each of their function, as we talked about before. So I think one pretty lightweight approach to propagating these events is doing it over HTTP. So yeah, that means we're back to HTTP requests, but. When a microservice, in that case, wants to publish an event or raise an event, it actually just saves it in its own database, and that's all that happens. So that's a pretty reliable operation. And then the microservice exposes an, an HTTP endpoint called, say, events, which allows some pagination. So you could have query parameters with like start and end. And another microservice that wants to subscribe to events then just asks that endpoint for events. Give me event zero through 100. They get them back, work through all of those, and then ask for the next set of 100. And then when there aren't any more, they'll just get a 404 back maybe or whatever your convention would be. Then the subscriber would sleep for a while and then ask again. So it'll just do polling against the uh, the endpoint really. And I so... Is it polling? Is it polling or is it using WebSockets or what? Well, you can do it just with polling. You could also do it with WebSockets if you want to sort of go one step higher, or you could do long polling or stuff like that. I do find actually for a number of systems, at least, just simple polling it actually scales enough. So I'm not saying that scales infinitely, but on the other hand, that's pretty much how RSS works, and that scales pretty well across the internet, I think. So I think this can work pretty well. And the reason I call it simple is because I think it's using technology that is probably already in the system. I think a lot of, of these kinds of systems already use HTTP. Or if they were using WebSockets already, then let's do it over WebSockets. But then maybe at some point you want to sort of graduate into something more that maybe gives you more insight to what uh, you are doing and maybe gives you one level more of uh, of decoupling. And at that point, you might want to introduce some kind of a queuing system like RabbitMQ, or you could even use something like like Kafka for your queuing as well. So the one, so the service raising an event posts a message onto this queuing system that then does some routing of the message to all the subscribers. So you can have a fan out. So it's one too many. So again, many subscribers to the, uh, to the same event Azure Service Bus is something that could deal with this as well. So there's lots of different technologies there. I think at a certain scale, that certainly also makes sense, or if you're using these technologies anyway. But I do think it's worth considering if 
if you want to introduce these technologies because they also come with complications. So that's why I bring up the HTTP-based one, that it's sometimes just simpler to do, at least for a while. Are there any like... Uh code smells that you know when you you see somebody that's kind of new to microservices you know things that they should watch out for in their code like if they're doing this that's probably not a good architecture for a microservice well i think think if there's too much chatter going on between the uh, the services that's definitely one signal so again if you get the example where in order to do its work a microservice has to go ask a number of different other microservices for things. So they do like get requests to get the user, get the order, get the prices, and then you're sort of, and then you're able to do some kind of a calculation. And that's uh, that's usually an answer pattern because there's too much communication going on. So the dependency becomes too hard between all of those. And that's US situations where we should look at, can we can we flip this on its head and do it based on on events. So could that microservice listen to user updated events and order created events and prices updated, price updated events, and then build up a copy of all that data and then be able to do its work based uh, based on on that. Because then we get less coupling between the, the different microservices and I mean, one of the things that we want to get with the microservices, again, coming back to the continuous delivery, we want to be able to de- to to at any point in time, really, deploy one of those microservices and the rest of the system should just continue working. So if we have too much sort of synchronous direct communication going on between them, then that becomes very difficult to do. If we do the event-based thing, it becomes much easier to do because just because while a service is being redeployed, it's not publishing new events, but that's fine. That doesn't really... That doesn't do anything bad to the subscribers that are just not seeing any events. And then one second later, when the service comes up, events starts flowing again, and that's fine. And the same with if the service team being deployed is subscribing to events from, from somewhere. Again, that's fine. It's just not reacting to those events right when it's being deployed. But afterwards, if it's the HTTP waste one, it'll just pick up at the same spot. Maybe it has seen the first 100 events. It'll just start from there and start eating again. If you have a queue-based thing, it just queue up a little bit and buffer in that, uh, that queue, and then it'll start taking events off the queue again. So with both types of those events, you get some resilience towards uh, when one of the services is quote-unquote down, and down can mean it's just being deployed. But it can also actually be be down, I guess, with, with, with scale. If we're talking about the scale of, of hundreds of microservices, and obviously something will be down quite often. You can't really get around that. Right. So, I mean, you've had some talks and I think you've even wrote a book on microservices. Uh, that's a, yes. Uh, so, you know, what are what are some more things that people typically don't think about when it comes to microservices? Well, I think the amount of insights and the way you, you need to, uh, to structure those uh, insights, I don't think, at least that that's something sometimes people underestimate, I think. So by insights, I mean, I mean, Having ways to monitor whether all these services are up, having ways to inspect what's happening, so having really good logs, having uh, uh, metrics that tell you how many requests are you getting, uh, what's the timing, are they being slower today, counting the amounts of, of errors in the system, and so on. Because, again, it's fine if you have three, if you're starting out, you build three services, you don't need that much rigor around 
them. But when you get into into 50, 100, so on, then you can't really keep an eye on all of them. So we need something consistent across all the microservices that just makes it easy to check their health and say, are you up? Are you still up? Are you still up? And gather that all into one view where you can see are all your microservices up. Are there and some the, recommended tools for doing that? I think, yes. I think, well, the way I think it's, the things are evolving, I think leaning on the technologies you are using is good. So, for instance, uh, Kubernetes, just as one example, if you are putting your microservices into uh, two containers, which can be one choice, might deploy them to, to Kubernetes. And Kubernetes does have uh, support for uh, what they call health probes, which is exactly about that. So they'll just continually ask an endpoint in the container, are you up, are you up, are you up? And, and you can just respond to that and then say, yes, I'm, I'm up, yes, I'm up. And then if it's down, then Kubernetes will restart the, uh, the container and you'll get a log mes- message out of that. And that log message you want to pick up and put into some kind of a central uh, uh, logging mechanism. And again, I think that's that's products for that. You could use uh, the Elk stack, Elasticsearch and, uh, and Kibana, uh, Logstash and Kibana. Or you could use something like Datadog, Honeycomb, I think could work as well, Elma.io, just to name a few of the ones that I know about. And I also think you want to put some logs from each of the microservices into the into one of those logging products where you can just gather up a lot of logs and then you can use search capabilities to make sense of them afterwards. So I think you actually need a lot of logs and you need to be able to trace things uh, through the system. So because even though we want to push the data close to the edge so we don't have too many hops when a user request comes in, you might still have a situation where, yeah, okay, so a request comes in from a user and the first microservice is actually able to respond to that and send a response back to the user. So that's not that complicated. But that might fire off a couple of events because maybe the user submitted something. So they submitted their shopping cart and now you're placing an order based on that. So there's, a, there's an event coming out of that. But you want, then it would be nice if we can correlate the original user request with that event and any subscribers uh, listening to those events can also be correlated back to the original user request in the logs because then if we have a problem, we can find out where does this come from. And the way we do that is, is just by the service at the edge just comes up with an ID and says, this is the trace ID. So it just picks another GWT for that. And then all the locks that pertain to that particular request also get that trace ID and you put it on the uh, on the event. And then in the subscriber, you do the same thing. You pick that trace ID out of the event and any lock that the service does based on handling the, that event gets the uh, trace ID attached to it. So when you're over in your, your locking thing, you can search for a particular trace ID and then you can see everything. You can see like, oh, Christian, uh, put this in his basket or no, he submitted this basket where were these products and then this happened and our logistics uh, service in the end couldn't fulfill the order and then this happened and, and so on and so forth. You can trace all of that through the system. I think that's something, it's not actually that hard to do if you do it sort of early on. I think it's one of the things you want to do pretty early on because then you can establish how you do it and it's easy enough to follow it. But it's difficult to retrofit if you only see it when you have like 30 or 50 microservices. Then it's a lot of work to sort of go into all of them and then do this uh, over again. And I think it's one of the things that 
does become important in order to continue to be able to debug uh, this mass of microservices that you end up with. Yeah, I imagine, you know, it can get pretty scary trying to debug, you know, everything. If you get up to a thousand or more microservices, how do you you really trace through and figure out something, especially if it's only in, like, the issues only in production and not in development or anything like that. That could be. Yeah, and with any, uh, like any other systems, that it it's, it doesn't happen that often necessarily, but sometimes you have those bugs that you just can't replicate. <laughs> right, right, right. So is there anything else that you'd like to go over that uh, we haven't covered so far? Well, I guess I'd also, uh, one of the typical things, I don't know if it's really a microservice thing, but I, I do think still people are maybe testing a little, not, not quite enough, uh, not uh, automating the tests uh, quite as much. I think it's much better than it was like 10 years ago, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but it's well also one of the things that if we want to go this route with many services, we want to do continuous delivery around them, then really need to have a good unit testing and integration testing game and even system level testing as well. So, do you use the same testing thing. frameworks for microservices as you do anything else? You know, like yes, X unit um, in .NET, like I yeah. guess uh, I'd, I'd lean on uh, on X unit usually. Uh, N unit use is fine as well. I'm sure there's other. It's just a habit that I tend to do actionate. And any other, you know, mocking frameworks probably work well as well, just the same. Yes, they do. Yes, it's just code. At, though I would say that that I think with microservices, because they they sort of become software that fits in your head, they become smaller. That's a phrase from Dan North, uh, software that fits in, in your head. I, I kind of like that. <laughs> I think the, the need for mocking actually goes down quite significantly because there's just not as many moving parts in a... Uh, in a microservice. So I tend to be quite fine with testing with the database, for instance, and, and covering much of the microservices, uh, much of the code in a microservice with those as well, because well, it's fast enough. <laughs> yeah. All right. Anything else All right. before we get into the picks? Well, we did mention the the, the book uh, briefly. Uh, you're right. I wrote a book about microservices in, in .NET in which I used the uh, lovely uh, Nancy web framework. But uh, things have evolved since then. So I'm in the process of writing the second edition of that book where I use ASP.NET Core's MVC uh, framework instead. And I'm introducing some Kubernetes into the book and so on and so forth. So the Nancy part of that book will be dropped from the title, but it'll still be microservices in .NET Core, but a second edition. Right, cool. And wh- when's that going to be out? Next year? I'm, oh, yes. I, yeah, <laughs> next year. Yes. <laughs> I'm hoping. <laughs> no. Well, I was going to say I'm hoping spring, but I don't know if I dare. <laughs> next year. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. I'll look. Yeah. I'll, I'll. I'll keep an eye out for it. It's great. Cool. Great. So uh, thanks, Christian. Hey, folks. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? 
And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. Let's get into picks. Did you come with a pick? Anything you want to let our listeners know about that you're interested? Oh, I'd uh, maybe start up with just uh, picking uh, science for coming up with a, a vaccine for Corona, which I oh, think we're yeah. all oh, waiting yeah. for. Definitely, <laughs> definitely. Right. That's so yeah. going to be so nice. Yeah. Uh, and so. then uh, I think that's the... On a technical side, there's the uh, Open Telemetry uh, project, which, which just makes all of this tracing stuff that I talked about before uh, much easier. So that's a nice pick as well. Okay. And so uh, my pick this week is based upon the new microphone that I just got. I just got a, a new oh, cool. Shure microphone, uh, the MB7, and I had that on as one of my picks on the other show. So, But I didn't mention the the arm that I'm using with it. And I'm actually using an arm by the company Blue. And most people are familiar with their their microphones, the Blue Yeti. But I've got a Shure microphone. I used to have a Blue Yeti. I went with the, the Blue arm. It's called the Compass. And I went with it because it's a very sturdy, well-built arm. It's not the cheapest arm out there. But most of the arms that you find out there on Amazon are like, they're like just like a desk lamp type arm. Very, you know wobbly and not quite so sturdy. So I went with this uh, blue compass arm and uh, it does a great job. It looks great. It's well-built, sturdy, things like that. And you can pretty much put any microphone on it. So it, uh, check that one out. If you're in the market cool. for for doing recordings or broadcasts or whatever, especially with a lot of people working from home nowadays, some people you know, want to sound good and they put a good microphone. They want a good arm to go with it. So check out the, the Blue Compass. Thanks, Christian. It was a good talk about microservices. We pre- really appreciate it. Thank you. It was fun. All right, great. great. And uh, if they want to reach out and have any questions, how can they get in touch with you? Twitter is probably the easiest. Yeah, do we want to, should I say no. the handle or do we? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So that's, well, it's C-H-R and then underscore hostel which is my last name, H-O-R-S-D-A-L. Uh, so that's my, my Twitter handle. Um, and I think that's probably the easiest. You can also find that on my website, www.horsdale-consult.dk. Awesome. And if our listeners want to reach out to the show, we would love to hear your feedback and what we can do to make things better. They can get you touch with me on Twitter. I am at .NET Superhero. So... I like to come to the rescue. So, da da da. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. And we'll catch you on the next episode of Adventures in.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y.com to learn more.